The battle against heroin and prescription opioid use disorder wages on across our nation and in our community. Nothing kills anybody more in our county. I mean, not even motor vehicle accidents. And how many people do you know that drive? But we have years of this ahead of us. On today's show, we'll update you on local efforts to fight our epidemic. We'll also discover what researchers are learning about chronic pain and pain treatment. Your genetic makeup affects how sensitive your body is to pain signals and how you perceive the pain. Also, genetic factors will influence your response to pain medications. And we'll focus our CTSI on a clinical trial using an item found in your local grocery store to battle a bacterial infection. This study aims to decrease the progression from colonization, a carrier stage, to active infection. Come and discover with us inside this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Welcome to CTSI Discovery Radio. I'm your host, Brian Belmer. CTSI Discovery Radio is brought to you by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. The CTSI is a consortium of researchers, doctors, scientists, and others representing eight institutions, including the Medical College of Wisconsin, Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Children's Hospital of Wisconsin, Freighters Hospital, Versity Blood Center of Wisconsin, and the Zablocki VA Medical Center. The CTSI works collaboratively across all of our member institutions in advancing biomedical research and finding new drugs, treatments, therapeutics, and interventions that are better, faster, and more economical than ever. Our mission is advancing health through research and discovery. We begin by refocusing our CTSI on a public health crisis that's impacting our community on local, state, and national levels. Back in 2017, we learned about the epidemic of heroin and prescription opioid abuse and related deaths in episode number 34. You'll find the podcast of that show on our CTSI website. Today, we'll update where we are in battling the highest incidence rate of heroin and prescription opioid abuse and deaths we've ever faced. Data compiled by the Milwaukee Community Opioid Prevention Effort, or Milwaukee COPE, shows that since 2005, Milwaukee County has seen a 495% increase in heroin-related deaths. And as of 2015, heroin accounted for nearly half of all drug-related deaths in our county. So where are we in 2019? To gain some perspective, we spoke with Dr. Jillian Theobald, Assistant Professor and Co-Medical Director of the CTSI's Adult Translational Research Unit at the Medical College of Wisconsin. When it comes to tracking our local opioid epidemic, Dr. Theobald says Milwaukee COPE is a data warehouse and information resource. We are a group who kind of houses the data for Milwaukee County, for what's going on with deaths, with overdoses, where are people touching the system, and work in gathering all the data and information. Dr. Theobald says since we last focused on our epidemic, there are signs that opioid-related deaths could be leveling off. We have been on a pretty significant upward trend in the last 
last couple years, but with six months worth of data through 2018 that we have so far, it looks like we may see either a leveling off or a decrease in the overall deaths. Which seems to be reflective of what's happening elsewhere. What we've seen is that the number of prescription opioids prescribed has leveled off. And so I think some of this stuff is mirroring what's happening nationally. And increased focus on the crisis is having a positive impact as well. There's a lot of boots on the ground, a lot of intervention, a lot of talk about it, a lot of activism and harm reduction going on. And so I think all of those things combined has really made a difference. But while there may be some encouraging signs, Dr. Theobald says the epidemic still has a stronghold on our community. There's no demographic spared, whether men, women, black, white, young, old. Although statistically, there are those more likely to be affected. The people that it primarily affects, Caucasians, deaths versus the overdoses that we see vary based on the age, but it's still predominantly whites that are affected. And it's not just those misusing opioids that are affected by this epidemic. The fallout is great. Like it's not just the people that are using, but it's their families that are affected. And so the fallout is probably much, much greater than we can actually measure. So how does our epidemic compare to what's happening nationally? Dr. Theobald says it's worse here than in many places. We are above national average in terms of the increase in the number of opioid deaths that we've had. Our increase was less than it was in 2016, but we're still above the average level of deaths. So we're a little bit more affected. As far as what's being abused, it remains both heroin and prescription opioids. But in what proportion? It's hard to gauge that because if you look at the deaths, the majority of people who die have more than one drug in their system. So the proportion of these drugs hasn't really changed, but there's multiple drugs in the system of the patients who have died. Deaths from fentanyl being mixed with heroin also remain an issue. And this is likely due to the fentanyl being mixed in with heroin. Fentanyl is much more potent, and so oftentimes they end up overdosing because of that potency factor. But there are signs that fentanyl-related deaths could be declining. People are a little bit more wary about their supply, and so there is a lot of harm reduction at the user level. So we're seeing less deaths. I don't know if we're seeing less fentanyl in the heroin. Next, Dr. Theobald shared the effect the opioid epidemic has on emergency medicine. We often don't have the capability to help someone that comes in and withdraw. And so that was one of the things that we had done through COPE. If someone comes in after an overdose, we offer them whatever their specific situation needs. And I don't know that any other emergency departments have this. Milwaukee COPE has been key in compiling an inventory of resources to help battle the opioid epidemic. A good solid inventory where we actually called the numbers that people gave us to make sure that they were valid. And then we categorized it. We said, are you primarily in prevention and education? Are you primarily in reduction. I think the value lies in that being available on a website for people to access. Milwaukee COPE is a collaborative effort, which is critical to its success. We brought people from behavioral health, from the county government, from the AIDS Resource Center in Wisconsin that does a lot of the needle exchanges. I think it was incredibly valuable to help direct what would be useful for everyone, not just for us or for those suffering from opioid use disorder. Still, while some 
progress is being made, there's a long battle ahead. Nothing kills anybody more in our county. I mean, not even motor vehicle accidents. And how many people do you know that drive? The silver lining is that we're at least leveling off as best we can tell. That's a really important step in the right direction, but we have years of this ahead of us. If you want to learn more about Milwaukee Cope, we actually have a website and the data is available on there. All of it's freely downloadable on a PDF so people can utilize it to help. We'll be sure to include a link on our CTSI website along with the podcast of this show. Finally, if you or someone you know is suffering from opioid use disorder, Dr. Theobald has a message that's equal parts taking heed and having hope. Keep trying, and if you relapse, just keep trying to get sober again. There is hope people do get sober before they die. Yeah. While the battle against opioid misuse wages on across our nation, the fact remains that there are people who need medication for chronic pain. The Centers for Disease Control released a 2018 report estimating that 50 million Americans have chronic pain, and about 20 million of them have pain severe enough that it frequently limits their quality of life. We've all had some type of pain, so we know what it can feel like. But what exactly is pain? How do we feel it and process it? And what has research discovered about treating it? We sought expert insight from Dr. Cheryl Stuckey, professor and director, pain division of the Neuroscience Research Center at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Dr. Stuckey starts by telling us at the core of it what pain is. Pain is really an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience that happens when our body is damaged. And the purpose of pain is really to allow our body to react to the painful stimulus, protect ourselves, and prevent further damage to our body. But the experience of having pain is as unique as the individual. The experience of having pain is really different for everyone. And this is actually what makes it very hard for doctors to define and to treat pain. So an injury or an illness that's extremely painful for one person might only be a little bit bothersome to another person. And why is this? It's because a person's response to pain is heavily influenced by many different individuals traits. So what is happening physically in our body that expresses itself as pain? We feel pain when a signal is sent from our pain receptors that are found in any part of our body, and that signal stimulates these nerve fibers to send the signal to the spinal cord and then on up to the brain. And the brain is really where the pain is interpreted. Then is pain all in our head? Well, no. The pain begins when particular nerve endings in our skin or in our muscles or our internal organs are stimulated. And this might result from damage to your body, like when you cut yourself, but it can also occur when there's damage to those direct nerve endings that innervate the skin or the muscle. In addition though, sometimes pain occurs when there's no real known cause. If pain is both sensory and emotional, then how much of pain is actually physical versus mental? And is it possible to differentiate? So pain is physical and it's mental. Your brain interprets pain signals coming up as pain. So like the scarecrow in The Wizard of Oz, if you didn't have a brain, you wouldn't actually have pain. So in a sense, it is all mental. 
However, most types of pain actually require some kind of physical input in order for the pain sensation to actually begin. So there are ways that we can differentiate our protective responses to painful stimuli from the brain. For example, if you touch a hot stove with your hand, an impulse will travel from your hand into the spinal cord and then back to the muscles in your arms and cause your hand to contract. This pulls your hand away from that hot surface and that all happens so fast that the message doesn't even have time to go to the brain. However, after the withdrawal of the hand, the pain signals will continue on to the brain. This is really the ouch that you then feel and this brain involvement allows us to stop from putting our hand on the hot stove the next time. Dr. Stuckey then explained the distinction between acute pain and chronic pain. Acute pain is generally intense and it's quite short-lived. Acute pain is really sudden, it can be even very severe, but it resolves or it goes away with a certain amount of time. You might feel acute pain when you have an illness, an injury, or a surgery. But with acute pain, you usually know exactly where that injury on your body is and why it hurts. And while it's hard to think of pain as a good thing, Dr. Stuckey says acute pain does serve a good and useful purpose. Its purpose is really to alert you to the injury and protect you from further harm. It serves as a warning signal, an alarm that goes off that tells you you need to protect yourselves. And what we don't realize is that we, because of our acute sense of pain, we're always moment to moment automatically protecting ourselves from injury. So in a sense, acute pain is really a gift of protection throughout life. By comparison, what about chronic pain? Chronic pain lasts far longer than acute pain, and chronic pain is persistent. And unlike acute pain, which goes away and resolves, the chronic pain really often does not go away for months and sometimes years. It can be mild or severe, and it can be continuous, like in the case of a rheumatoid arthritis. Or it can be intermittent, happen and go away, like a migraine headache. And while acute pain has a useful purpose, chronic pain, not so much. We call it maladaptive. We mean it serves no useful purpose. And it can actually occur without any clear reason, without a tissue injury, or even after the injury is healed. So chronic pain is actually considered a health condition itself. With chronic pain, you might not know the reason for the pain at all. For example, after an injury is healed, the pain remains and it might even become more intense. Next, Dr. Stuckey tells us there are some common risk factors for chronic pain, including genetics. Your genetic makeup affects how sensitive your body is to pain signals and how you perceive the pain. And some evidence suggests that the tendency to develop chronic pain can have a very strong genetic component. Also, genetic factors will influence your response to pain medications. Gender. Women report more frequent pain, more severe levels of pain, and longer lasting pain than do men. And it's not really known whether this is due to biological differences like hormones or immune cells, or whether it's more psychological and social factors. People with long-term health problems. You're more likely to have chronic pain, if you have chronic illnesses, things like fibromyalgia or migraine headaches or arthritis. And psychological and social factors. Chronic pain can set up a vicious cycle with sleep disorders, depression, anxiety, and those can feed forward on each other. So it's not just the pain itself, but it's multiple factors. So sleep, 
pain, depression, and your outlook on life are all part of the gestalt of your susceptibility to chronic pain or your resiliency dealing with chronic pain. There's also lifestyle choices that can positively affect our ability to cope with chronic pain. Having a healthy diet, exercising regularly, practicing mindfulness, and finding outlets like yoga and hobbies that we enjoy, and also having healthy relationships with other people and even pets. Also, avoiding negative factors like smoking and avoiding too much alcohol can also have a positive effect on chronic pain. For people suffering from chronic pain, pain management is key. We just heard an update on the opioid abuse epidemic in our community. And while prescription opioids can be a gateway for misuse, Dr. Stuckey says when used correctly, opioids can be a good option for some types of pain management. Opioids can help you if you have a short-term acute pain, but since opioids are very powerful drugs, they're usually not the best way to treat long-term chronic pain like arthritis, low back pain, or frequent headaches. When they're used long-term, the Opioids can really dampen your body's own ability to fight pain. So that's one reason not to take opioids chronically. But the second reason is if you take opioids for a long time, you may be at risk for addiction. Even when prescribed by a doctor or a medical professional, opioids can lead to dependence and addiction. And opioids are highly addictive in part because they activate the very powerful reward centers in your brain. She expands on how opioids work and why they're so highly addictive. So opioids bind to opioid receptors in the body. These receptors are proteins to which an opioid drug attaches. And this, in turn, generates a signal inside a cell that ultimately leads to pain relief. So the prescribed opioids are a broad group of pain-relieving drugs that work by interacting with these opioid receptors in your cells. And so when opioid medications travel through your bloodstream and attach to these opioid receptors in your brain, the cells then release signals that muffle your perception of pain. And at the same time, they boost your feelings of pleasure. And all of this adds up to create a critical need for access to pain-killing medications that cannot cause addiction, do not cause abuse, do not have severe effects with potential overdose, would make life a lot easier for the prescribers and could save the lives of many patients. To create such medications, researchers need to better understand how chronic pain and its pathways work. In the meantime, we need to be careful not to unfairly stigmatize medications for treating chronic pain, including opioids and those who need them. Chronic pain is oftentimes very isolating and the individuals with chronic pain feel alone and they feel misunderstood by their family, by their friends, and even misunderstood by their caregivers and doctors. Conversely, some patients may need to come to terms with not taking opioids. It's become clear that despite the extra discomfort some might feel, in the end, many patients are actually much better off without taking opioids, even if it means that they might be in more discomfort. Also, healthcare providers need to identify those people that are most vulnerable to opioid addiction, including those with mental health issues or pre-existing substance abuse issues, and establish more sensitive processes that ensure that they experience as little pain as possible, but without relying
relying on these potentially dangerous opioids. Dr. Stuckey says there have been many discoveries about pain in recent years, but more research is needed. Researchers have often naively thought we're going to find the silver bullet based on a single mechanistic target when it makes sense. There would be a need for multiple targets to be inhibited or blocked to alleviate pain. We need to understand what those multiple factors are at play in an individual in order to really completely treat their pain. Up next, we focus our CTSI on clinical trials. Here's Kayla Pierce. Thanks, Brian. Today we'll discover a clinical trial that's using not a drug, but something found in your local grocery store to try and fight the development of a serious bacterial infection. Dr. Sylvia Munoz-Price is a professor of clinical medicine, Division of Infectious Diseases, and serves as the enterprise epidemiologist for Freydert and the Medical College of Wisconsin. She tells us that her study has been funded and will begin very soon. Who exactly is this clinical trial intended for? It's a study intended for hematology or oncology patients detected to have C. difficile, a bacteria that can be a bad player in the gut. We'll learn more about what exactly C. difficile is in a moment. But first, Dr. Munoz-Price explains that patients in this trial will have some form of a blood cancer, conditions such as... So leukemia is one, bone marrow transplant patient, lymphoma is another one, Myeloma is another one. We're going to be enrolling patients that are hospitalized in hematology oncology units. The one thing patients in this study will have in common is that they're at risk for developing a condition known as Clostridium difficile, commonly referred to as C. diff. What is C. diff and what causes it? C. diff is a bacteria that up until recently we thought was acquired in the hospitals primarily, but data shows that this bacteria actually is present in the stool of farm animals, in the soil, in the water that we drink, it is in the produce we eat. So we're exposed to this bacteria on a daily basis. Since it's so ever-present, why aren't more people affected by it? What is it that keeps us C. difficile free? It is the healthy flora that we have in our gut. Dr. Munoz-Price gives us an analogy to help us better understand. Think of a parking lot. The parking lot is your gut. The parking lot has a thousand parking spots. A healthy gut will have all those thousand parking spots filled. There will be pickups, SUVs, motorcycles, and there will be all colors of the rainbows. That's a healthy gut. Okay, we're with you so far. And when that healthy gut, or parking lot, is filled with healthy bacteria or cars... Imagine if C. difficile tries to get in there. There's no space. There is no space where C. diff can take over that parking lot, that gut. But sometimes medications or medical procedures can deplete our gut of its healthy bacteria. So what happens? That parking lot then has a thousand spots usually filled with all these different type of vehicles, now it has 200, and it has only white vehicles. So if C. diff gets in that, it will just camp out. What are common symptoms of C. diff infection? C. difficile infection manifests itself in diarrhea that is persistent, but it can have other symptoms, abdominal pain, fever. The spectrum varies, and some people even die 
but those are the lowest percentage of patients that have C. difficile infection. So it's rarely serious to the point of being deadly. However, people with C. diff cannot function in their daily activities because they have intractable diarrhea and can affect their quality of life. Dr. Munoz Price's clinical trial focuses on hematology oncology patients. Are they more susceptible to contracting C. diff? Yes, they have higher risk of having C. difficile. Why? Because their gut flora, their parking lots, are not healthy. And why aren't they healthy? Well, chemotherapy, immunotherapy, hospitalizations, changes in diet, maybe even the underlying rheumatological disease. Knowing these patients are more susceptible, they are tested when admitted to the hospital. We test hematology-oncology patients on admission to the hospital for the presence of C. diff. And it tells us, okay, there is C. diff hanging out in your gut. Some patients progress into C. difficile infection. She adds that it's also common for these patients to have multiple bouts with this infection. It is very frequent, especially in the hematology-oncology population, for them to have one episode improve and then relapse. So we want to prevent the patients that have C. difficile hanging out to even develop C. difficile infection. If a patient has C. diff bacteria in their gut, what can be done to keep it from progressing into C. diff infection? Right now, if we find a patient to be a carrier, there's really nothing that we can do to prevent them from progressing to C. difficile infection. That needs to change. We should come up with a way of stopping that progression. And that's what her clinical trial aims to do. This study aims to decrease the progression from colonization, a carrier stage, to active infection. Using her parking lot analogy, she elaborates on what they're trying to do. We are trying to change the composition of that parking lot so that the number of vehicles increases and the colors of the vehicles change to a more diverse spectrum so that people that have C. difficile hanging out do not progress to active infection. What's the solution? Potato starch. Potato starch? Yes, potato starch. How could potato starch possibly be the answer? Potato starch is made of non-digestible complex carbohydrates. When you eat it, it stays in your gut. It is not absorbed in the small bowel. And your colon bacteria feed off the potato starch. And there's preliminary evidence that potato starch as a dietary supplement could work. Preliminary studies done at University of Michigan show that changes that occur in the microbiome composition are beneficial. That's why we want to see if potato starch could alter the gut flora so that patients do not progress to active C. difficile infection. Where does one get potato starch? Yeah, so interestingly, potato starch is available in any supermarket. Go to the flower section and you will find potato starch. It's like $4 for a huge package. How will the potato starch be given to patients enrolled in this clinical trial? We're going to be giving two full tablespoons. Mix it with either water, yogurt, or warm soup. It shouldn't be hot because hot liquids will inactivate the potato starch. So we'll have the patient take it in the morning and in the evening, and we'll do that for 14 days.
Once the patients begin ingesting the potato starch, researchers will look for changes in their gut over the 14-day trial. The main outcome is going to be the changes in the gut flora. So we will collect the stool samples before they start taking this, and then we'll have follow-up samples down the road as well. Dr. Munoz-Price says while potato starch is relatively harmless, it's introduced gradually into the patient's diet. Potato starch can cause a little bit of bloating, so we're going to give a small dose first, and then hopefully patients will get used to the full dose, making sure that it is feasible to supplement their diets with this carbohydrate. With any research, there's potential risks or side effects. But with this clinical trial using something as innocuous as potato starch... Other than the transient bloating and abdominal discomfort, we don't expect major side effects. Does she have any advice for how we can all reduce risk of developing C. diff infection? I cannot emphasize more the need for balance nutrition. Something that I find all the time in my patients is how much processed foods they eat. You know, bacteria do not like processed foods. They want you to eat a balanced, healthy meal. It's so important. Dr. Munoz-Price is excited to get her study underway soon, thanks to support from the CTSI. The CTSI has funded this study, and I have been working with the clinical trials office that is funded by the CTSI for over a year, and they have been extremely valuable in ensuring that studies that I design are actually executed. What's her long-term goal? through this clinical trial and her other extensive research relative to C. diff. Thank you for asking that question. You know, my long-term goal is to change the paradigm of infection control and antimicrobial stewardship. So instead of concentrating only on infection control practices in the hospital, I think we need to target manipulation of the microbiome of our patients to prevent the emergence of antimicrobial resistance in our population. I have a feeling we'll be hearing more from Dr. Munoz-Price in the future. I think you're right, but right now, we need to wrap up this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Our sincere thanks to today's guests, Dr. Jillian Theobald, Dr. Cheryl Stuckey, and Dr. Sylvia Munoz-Price. On behalf of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin and all of our affiliate partners and members, along with Kayla Pierce, I'm Brian Belmer, wishing you happier, healthier days ahead. For more information about research or to listen to this program online and on demand, please visit the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin website at ctsi.mcw.edu. CTSI Discovery Radio is written, produced, and hosted by Brian Belmer in collaboration with WMSE Radio. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Reza Shakir.